Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This evening we're going to be in 1 Kings 8. Well, the last time we looked at the conclusion of the building project, Solomon's having the temple built, and today is the most important part, because up to this point, it's an empty structure, grandiose, gold sheeting, um, cedars, marble, gorgeous structure. Of course, it doesn't exist right now in the Holy Land anymore, but up to this point, it was a beautiful, empty structure. As we go through this chapter, we're going to see Solomon dedicated to the Lord and welcome him into the structure. Now we covered this, it's amazing, I love when I, and this isn't planned, I'm going through the New Testament, I'm going through the Old Testament, and all the, you know, the uh, parallels and how they agree with each other. We were going through Ephesians 2, two Sundays ago, speaking about these different layers of God's relationship to us, right? In the children of Israel in the Old Testament, is the, the tabernacle, and then the temple, and then the person of Jesus Christ in human form to the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit residing in the, be the believer today. Based on those teachings, going back to the temple, right, we can look at this and ask ourselves the same question. You know, the house of our hearts. Have we dedicated it to God? Is he allowed in? Have we made ourselves open to him? If Jesus was to come to the house of our hearts, are there a lot of locked closets? Well, don't look at that. Well, don't go up to the attic. Oh, you can't, you can't go into that room. Just stay right here, Jesus. So, it's amazing. Temple, hearts of our house, is God welcome. Now, there's a parallel scripture, which I'm only going to cover a few verses, in 2 Chronicles chapters 5, 6, and 7. You could read those on your own. But it's basically a parallel scripture to 1 Kings 8. So, jumping in, in verse 1. Now, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion, and all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark, and they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up, also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles and the poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside, so they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the children made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Sounds like a lot. If you're not familiar with the Bible or you're not familiar with the Old Testament, don't panic. I'm going to make it digestible. But for me, who I've read the Bible many times over, I like the detail. And that's the beauty of God's word. You know, people make a lot of, they cast a lot of aspersions on God's word. 
I tell you what, I, I've known this from 23 years of law enforcement, that a liar will be very vague so that every time you try to catch him or her, he can be like a chameleon and shift and dodge and say, but I didn't say that. I said generally. If the Bible was not true, there wouldn't be so many detail to it. Because this can easily, you can go into the old pictures, you can go into the old the Temple Mount that exists today, you can look at the structure, and basically what you'll find in these excavations is it's exactly like it says in the Bible. There's a whole field called biblical archaeology. So I enjoy the detail. Um, maybe some of you do, but I will break it down so we can you know, digest it. The Ark of the Covenant was that, that piece of furniture, this box overlaid with pure gold. And there was a, a seat on it with two fashioned cherubim, angels with their wings outstretched and, and touching. Over the last two chapters, we did a lot of visual aids on the, on the screen back there so you can get an idea, artist's rendition of what this looked like. So the Ark of the Covenant, where God said, I will dwell on, over the mercy seat. God's amazing. His presence would be there. Well, the building's built, and now they have to put the Ark into that Holy of Holies, that small place that only the high priest can enter once a year, and only with the blood of the sacrifice, and it was a picture of atonement for our sins. So this, the, you know, it's, it kind of reminds me of, if you're doing a building project on your house, you know, and you're, you're doing carpentry, and you're, you're painting, and you're, you know, nailing stuff, you take the, the precious furniture out, right? You wait till it's all done, then you start to bring the stuff in, otherwise you make a mess of it. So, very simple. You know, I try to make it that we can understand in our vernacular. They had to fix everything, and then they put the Ark of the Covenant in when it was all done, right? But this is a big deal for Israel. There's a lot of celebration, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of fanfare, and we see this in the feasts of Israel and the dedication, the things to the Lord. We, we see the sacrifice, the food, the fellowship, God's word. Passover. It had a meaning to it. The Jews have been celebrating this for thousands of years. So much symbolism. You know, God, I think, I don't want to speak for him, but it's almost like a, a mnemonic device, you know, M-N-E-M-O-N-I-C, where you bring things together to get the mind to focus. You put all these fellowship, feasting, and, and then God's word. So people associate the things of God with something pleasurable, right? Today, people say, oh, I don't like church, you know. They, they watch what I'm wearing. They watch how I'm speaking. It was never meant to be like that. Anything associated with God was supposed to be pleasurable. Mnemonic device, right? The Ten Commandments were in the ark, and there were different items in the ark over, over the years, but here at this point of time was the Ten Commandments. Again, symbolism is all over the scripture. Galatians 3.4, the law, the law was in the ark of the covenant. Galatians 3.24 says this, that the law was our tutor or schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So even in the Old Testament, the Jews could look forward to the Messiah, look forward to the age of grace. The law was a tutor to show us, well, I can't keep the law. It's not possible. Even my thoughts betray me. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. So even back then, it was pointing forward. Verse 10, 1 Kings 8 and it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of God filled the temple. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in this dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. So the Shekinah, God's indwelled presence, ends up just... 
God's amazing. I mean, imagine the children of Israel watching this. What was going on? Look, and this, this, and God's presence just fills this place. And, and he's so amazing that even the priests have to scuttle out of there and just stand there in awe and say, oh, God's in this place. Pretty exciting. Second Chronicles 5 adds that there were musicians singing and praising. So there was a little praise band kind of going on there, a little worship as, as this is happening. And, and that's what praise and worship is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a show. It's supposed to bring us into the presence of the Lord, if it's done right, by the way. <laughs> uh, so what we find is that, that the priest could not compete with God's glory. And uh, a few lessons that we can learn even today in ministry is that never to compete with God's glory. Don't ever try to take God's glory. You know, there's a lot of guys in a lot of pulpits saying a lot of blasphemous things. I'm the mini Messiah, you know. I, and, and I tell you, it's more than a handful. I, I'm the Messiah. You need to worship me. I'm Jesus. And, and they have followings of hundreds, sometimes thousands of people taking the glory of God. Now, we, you wonder why they don't get struck down because we're in the age of grace. But God will judge them because their hearts are evil, right? A few scriptures to go with this. Exodus 19, God came to the children of Israel from this cloud and smoke. Remember, a sinner can't behold the fullness of God's glory and stand and not be probably killed by it, right? So in the Old Testament, God had to veil even, even Elijah and Moses. He showed some of his glory to them, but they didn't see the full picture, Right? Exodus 13, 21 says, God led the children of Israel in a pillar of a cloud. And again, it was a visual aid. Imagine being the children of Israel and just seeing, whoa, wow, God's right over there. I mean, he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. But he also had these particular venues where his, his physical presence people could see was tangible. <laughs> I get excited when I read this stuff. I don't know how people can have a problem um, with the Old Testament because there's so much of God's glory in here. You know, he always was t telling his people, I'm here. I'm right here for you. You, know, you can always come to me. And the other, the other thing that we look at is that, very important, that the temple was just a building. So it had gold, it had marble, it had cedar. But it would be just a building if the glory of God was not inside of it. Just a structure. You know, where I... Um, you know, you drive around New Jersey, and I've seen a lot of foreclosed homes. And when people aren't living in it, the grass grows, the windows, you know, um, people vandalize the windows, uh, mold can grow into the house, the, the ceilings can leak. Isn't it amazing? A house is just a house. Without its inhabitant, it's really nothing. There's no glory to it. So you see all these illustrations in the Bible that we can actually look at today. It's very exciting. Same thing first. You know, as people, when we die, uh, we, go, we, we go to the ground. And if we're left outside, the bugs get us and the maggots and it's not pretty. And our bodies break down into the same elements that God used from the dirt to breathe life into and made Adam. You know, if you take um, samples of soil and you do mineralogy and you do different tests on it and you take our skin, do the same thing, it's the same stuff. But the difference is God has breathed life into us, right? Without the Spirit of God, we're just going to go back into the ground. Our souls are going to go somewhere. But what does the body mean? So I, I make the same example. Um, without the Spirit of God, we're just the same thing that is endemic uh, to the rest of the world, you know, the, the uh, elements of the world. 
on the periodic table. It's kind of sad, isn't it, if you think about it? That's why it's so important to be revived, to have a, a revived spirit, to be alive to God. You know, Jesus said you pass from death unto life. It's an amazing thing, amazing promise. Death doesn't scare us anymore, shouldn't. Verses 12 and 13, as Solomon starting this prayer, you, you see priorities. First of all, God spoke. Well, he didn't speak audibly, but he spoke visually. You know, priests scuttling out, standing back, wow, in awe of God. And then when God was done, Solomon spoke. And that's the way we should be as children of God, that we let God speak to us, and then we speak. How can we go into the world and make a difference if God's not filling us? Right? So you just thought that today you're going to come in here and you're going to talk about construction, right? <laughs> not so. Not so when we go through God's word. And what did Solomon say that's so important that he says, listen, we, we want you to dwell here forever. You want you, we want you to be with us. And then Jesus came later and then the Holy Spirit came. Right? They thought this was glorious. They didn't see the new work that God was going to do. Verse 14, and then the king turned around and blessed the whole congregation of Israel while all the congregation of Israel was standing. Then he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David and with his hand has fulfilled it saying, since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be, be there. But I chose David, King David, to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, where it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall come from your loins, he shall build the house for my name. Solomon was David's son. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel, and there I have made a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. You know what's amazing? Sometimes as Christians, we, we want to build stuff. We want to do stuff. And, and we feel like a failure when it doesn't come to pass. David got credited for his heart. He wanted to build that house. But you know what was cool? He was obedient. Oh, you don't want me to do it, Lord? You want my son to do it? Okay, I submit. But David really wanted to build God a house. And as you can see in the scripture, I always say this. When you go to your job, they want to know how many widgets you make at the end of the day. The standard's 20 widgets. You better make 20 or above. When we work for the Lord, he doesn't care how many widgets we make. He wants to see our heart. He wants to see our motives. People build big things in ministry today. But they mean nothing at the end because the motives could be completely wrong. So we have to understand that as brothers and sisters in the Lord, God grades us on our, our desires and our, our desire to please him, even if we fail. He's so gracious, isn't he? He's not like an earthly boss. So Solomon gives this background, um, and David was obedient not to build the temple. He could have. He had all the connections. He got all the materials together for his son Solomon to do it. But he yielded to the Lord. But Uzziah, remember Uzziah, great king Uzziah? He, uh, he messed up. Not Josiah, Uzziah. You know, he started usurping the priest role and he was struck with leprosy because he was disobedient. However, David was obedient and it was credit to him for righteousness. And then we see, of course, Solomon blessing the congregation as well. Verse 22. 
And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Remember, God's omnipresent. But how does he do it? He's God. That's the answer. He could be everywhere, but he could also, part of him could be physically in that temple that he promised. Yet re regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open towards this temple night and day toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. And you may hear the supplication of your servant and your people, Israel, when they pray towards this place, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So Solomon's prayer, we're going to look at nine elements to his prayer. I'm going to take these in little bites. So he stands before the altar. This is significant because the altar was a place where the sacrifices were made. See, the altar was a place where atonement, the atonement process took place for the sins of Israel. The altar was a place of hope, and Jesus fulfilled that in the New Testament. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, well, back then they, they were literal lambs. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, gave himself, gave himself his life so that there could be atonement for our sins. So in essence, this altar is a prefigurement or a type of getting to God through the Lamb or the Son. Pretty amazing stuff. So in Solomon's prayer, we see a few things. Number one, the nature of God. The nature of God. You know, I, I like this too, as we look at the posture of Solomon. Again, and, and I don't know, this legalism has, has kind of bombarded the church. All this different legalism, like if you pray, you have to be on your knees. Who says that? Where does it say that in the scripture? They prayed in all different types of positions. Solomon and often the Jews would look up to heaven with their hands outstretched and they would, they would pray this way. How dynamic, how exciting. A.W. Tozer, if you're familiar with him, he prayed proned out on the floor. That was his thing. He would lay down with his, with his you know, proned out, his face to the floor and his arms and legs spread out and he would just pray to God. That was his thing. Who's going to judge Tozer, right? So when we pray, sometimes we pray you know, like this, and sometimes we pray on our knees, and, and listen, I get it. It's a, it's a humbling position, but we can't be legalistic about it. That's what turns people off to the church. When we say stuff that's not biblical to make it look holy and good, and really it's a turnoff to the world. So I just wanted to, you, you watch how the Jews prayed back then, right? Very interesting. So nine aspects. Number one, the nature of God. Solomon confirms the goodness of God, that he's the only true God, and that many of God's promises and blessings are conditional. Not all, but many. God says, if you continue to worship me and not idols of stone and statues, that's ridiculous. You continue to be faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you. That's called a conditional. If, 
this than that takes place. And the, it, the kings and, and Israel had a responsibility to keep God's word. So, the nature of God, and I look at this as adoration. When we pray, you know, do you ever pray and just kind of start out and go, oh God, you're so merciful, Lord. You're so good to me. I've been so blessed, Lord. And I mean, that's called adoration. So when we think of the nature of God, we can't help but adore him. So verse 31, continuing on. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. So the second element is a prayer for justice. Justice. Everybody wants justice. You know, when we, if we're a victim of a crime, we want justice. We want the authorities to mete out proper justice. Actually, somebody who's convicted of a crime also wants justice. They want to, be, to get a fair shake through the court systems. But as Christians, we have to go a step further and mete out justice. You know what's really sad? When Christianity turns into cliques and celebrityism, that's not justice. Because what we're doing is we're taking people who have a certain look and certain talents and certain popularity and we're bringing them in and leaving everybody else outside. That's not justice. There's a lot of things that happen in the church that are not just. So we need to be people of justice. We need to be fair to all. Not an easy thing, but it can be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, even in, in the New Testament, about oaths. If you promise to do something for your neighbor, if there's a, a, a conditional promise, you need to keep that promise, Jesus said. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But we know that in the end, God will mete out justice. The unjust, if they get away with things in this world, maybe because of wealth or other things, um, that's not going to happen in the afterlife. God's not swayed by money and popularity. Verse 33. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. So third point is repentance and restoration with respect to losing battles. Now they lost literal battles. I mean, if you watch war movies or you've been in combat or even today, if you see what goes on, it's, it's depressing when you go into a battle and your buddies, your comrades are fallen, you know, or, or you get wounded. Um, however, our battles, usually for today, if we're in America, we probably don't have to be in an actual battle right now, but we have spiritual battles, right? And we ha we're foolish if we don't think that the enemy wants to come against us and blow our witness for the Lord, especially if we're evangelists. So, the question is, when we go into battle spiritually, are we prayed up? And when battles come our way, as the expression goes, we have to ch pick and choose our battles. Sometimes we lose those spiritual battles and we look back and say, Lord, were you in that battle? Maybe I should have prayed more about that. You know, some of us have a fighting spirit. But, quite frankly, for me, I'll fight the good fight, no problem. If the Lord's in it, if he's not in it, I don't want anything to do with it. I really don't. Because all it's going to do is bring heartache, spiritual or otherwise. So we can see that there's literal things that are happening for the children of Israel here, but we can also make application for our own lives. Verse 35. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, 
Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and give rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. So the fourth point is repentance and restoration with respect to droughts. Again, for them it was literal. They didn't have the advanced plumbing that we have today. And even with the advanced plumbing, some states are facing a drought. And we have a lot of technology. Pumps and irrigation and computers and you know, desalinization uh, techniques. Man, we have a lot of technology. And we still, some of the Midwest and, and California, although they're making some of their own problems, but drought. Back then, if there was no rain and your crops died, you starved. That's, that's rough. However, for those of us that are not farmers, <laughs> and we're not living in drought-stricken states, we can go through droughts too. Spiritually dry seasons. Now, you've been a Christian long enough, even for it's a short period of time, we've gone through dry seasons where we need refreshment. We need that hydration from the Lord. Sometimes we create our own droughts. And that's the sad part of it. Actually, 38 is going to address that. But, Lord, did I create this drought? Uh, you know, it's, we can never say, oh, Lord, you've moved away from me. That's nonsense. The Lord's a constant. He's fixed. If anybody moved, we moved. And we've got to say, all right, Lord, where did I, where did I go wrong? I missed that sweet fellowship with you, Lord. I missed the counsel. I missed the wisdom. And we have to go back, repent, and get back to where we were before the things got severed. Verse 37. When there is famine in the land, or pestilence, blight, or mildew, locusts, or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone, or by, it sounds like a legal document, doesn't it? You ever read a legal document? But it's great because he covers all the bases. Whatever supplication is made by anyone, or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart, and spreads out his hands toward this temple. Then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you, only you, know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. The fifth point, or the fifth portion or segment of the prayer is repentant, they call this repentance and restoration with respect to miscellaneous tragedies. <laughs> That's just kind of like a catch-all. Blight and mildew and pestilence and grasshoppers and whatever the case may be. You know, if you had a... Today we, we see a grasshopper and they're cute. You know, they're hopping around. But back in those days, they would have a swarm of these bugs that would just start eating up their crops, locusts. and Not good. Not good. But verse 38 was striking to me, that each person knows the plague of his or own, her own heart. How true. The scariest place to be is when we're deceived about our own hearts, where we think that we're always right, where we think that we always have the answer, where we think that everybody's dumb and I'm always the one with the right answers. That's a scary place to be because the plague of our own hearts often brings tragedies. Tragedies. It's more tragic when a Christian has this attitude, or superior or haughty or, you know, I'm just better than everybody else. That's a Pharisaic attitude. Verse 41. He says, Moreover, concerning a foreigner 
who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake. For they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. Remember Rahab. When he comes and prays toward this temple, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Six out of nine, the sixth point. Prayer is regarding a foreigner or a Gentile, an alien, a stranger, somebody not indigenous to Israel or to the people of Israel. And this is remarkable because I have to say it, prejudice started entering into the heart of the children of Israel later on. And that was not authored by God. As a matter of fact, when the Assyrians came and 722 uh, B.C. and attacked the northern kingdom and expatriated people back to Assyria and they put their, their uh, Gentiles into the land, the whole thing about the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, Jesus was trying to make a point because people looked down on the Samaritans because they were a mixed race. That's prejudice, right? There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new in 2015 that hasn't always been. But God, this is very clear, that God wanted the pagans who were worshiping false gods to come to Israel and know the true monotheistic God. It's funny because evangelism started in the Old Testament. And I tell you what, I, I shudder when I find out about these ministries that Christians, supposed to Christian ministries, that completely reject the Old Testament. There's so much in here. The New Testament is a, a revelation or an unva unveiling of what we see in the Old Testament, a fulfillment. So if we don't know the Old Testament, what are we fulfilling? It just strengthens the idea of the gospel and what Jesus came to do. Jesus died on the cross. What does that mean? You ask the stranger who doesn't know anything about the scripture. It doesn't mean anything to me. You've got to explain to them what it means and the symbolism and what the Lord actually did for that. He didn't just feel like he wanted to be hung on a cross because he didn't want that. But he did it because, because that's the only way to to deal with our sins. Um, you know, application, much of what I talked about in Ephesians 2. The Old Testament, there was prejudice. The New Testament in the church, it's weird. Some people have the attitude, I can only worship with people who are just like me, look like me, act like me, eat the same foods as me. I don't see that in the scripture. I don't get it. We're supposed to be a diverse from many different nations are going to come in the kingdom of heaven and sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Very diverse cross-section of, of society. Verse 44. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and toward the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Now, I do have to make this clear again if you're not very familiar with the scripture. We don't have to pray today towards the temple. First of all, it doesn't exist anymore. Jesus came he established a new dispensation, a new stewardship, a new age, the age of grace, the church age. So Jesus embodied a lot of these things, but you know, remember, let's, let's go back. The Bible is a historical book. It's also a doctrinal book, and we're covering both this evening. Seven, prayers regarding going to war. The caveat was it a righteous war. Even Jesus said in the New Testament, the king goes against another king. One king's got 10,000, one king's got 15,000 men. He counts the cost before he goes to war. However, in the Old Testament, God didn't want his people just to go, war, go to war and start slaying people. Um, you know, and people have a misunderstanding about that. 
A lot, some of these nations that were conquered were so horrible, such child abuse, such um, debauchery, that God had to eventually judge them because it was going to spread to everybody. But when you go to war, right? Are we, are we praying to God? Is this something, again, as Christians, spiritual battle? Are we prayed through before we engage in this? Is this really from the Lord? Verse 46. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy and take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of whose of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then here in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Actually, it could be translated maintain their justice as well. Forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, i.e. the Persians, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people, Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by the hand of your servant Moses when you brought out our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God mouthful. Eight, <laughs> prayers regarding being conquered and taken captive, right? The Babylonians, the Assyrians, then the Persians came and the people really repented. So while they were in foreign lands, they prayed and the Persians took favor on the Jews and they sent them back. Rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, all that kind of stuff. Um, Solomon in his early years was a realist. He had unmatched wisdom. People get confused, but I thought he was the guy with all those wives and, and the pride and all that. Solomon went through stages in life, but I really believe in the beginning he started out good. Unfortunately, he abused the privileges that were given to him, but there's a lot of wisdom in what he's praying here in the early days. Okay, um, taking being conquered and captive with 38, about each person knowing their own hearts, we need to be realistic and even in the Old Testament, it says, well, there's none who does not sin. This isn't something that came about in Christianity since the beginning of time, right? Since the fall, men and women sin. And they need to repent. They need to be restored back to God. But a lot of times, it's not from without. We still have a flesh nature. And it deceives us into thinking we're, it's okay. And we might not in America ever see a situation because you, you just can't imagine it until you read the historic accounts, and you still can't imagine it, because we've always been a free people. But imagine, for argument's sake, if the Canadians, you know, one, beat us in a war and then started taking people out of New Jersey and, you know, taking them to Canada and where they speak French, and I don't speak French, and, you know, you're thinking, I miss my homeland, and it's really cold up here. Okay, I'm trying to get you into the understanding of what the Jews went through when they were taken to Babylon, okay? So... They were literally taken captive. We probably won't experience that. However, our sin can take us captive. It can, we can sin to the point where we're, we're conquered, we're defeated, and maybe we just don't even have the ability to do good anymore. 
And, and there's people that I've met that they're sad stories, long, sordid, sad stories of their sin taking them captive. Children of Israel, it, ha- it happened literally. For today, it can happen in a spiritual sense. Now, it's funny because 2 Corinthians 10 tells us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So we're not supposed to be taken captive by our sin because our thought life can captivate us. It could be sinful. But the Bible says that we're to take our thoughts captive instead of our thoughts taking us captive. You see the difference? It's got to go one way or the other. Right? Otherwise, it starts with a little bit and it starts to spread. Like a crack in in an incredible huge piece of granite or a marble or stone, just a little bit of pressure, pressure, maybe from vegetation, and a hairline fissure just gets bigger and bigger and opens wider and wider, and it'll split that thing in half, that massive structure. 54. Verse 54. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose before the altar of the Lord from kneeling. So now he goes... He's actually at some point in a kneeling posture on his knees with his hands, again, spread up to heaven. Then he stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise. It's still true today. Which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us that he may incline our hearts to himself. He even prays that, that we would do the right thing by God. That's pretty smart. To walk in all his ways and keep his commandments, his statutes, and judgments which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine with which I have made supplication before the Lord be near the Lord our God day and night that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day may require that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. Last one, nine, the end of the prayer or the benediction. Okay, let's remember, folks, in, in essence he's saying what's important in life. God needs to be the center. God needs to be the center. In verse 60, the Gentiles coming to faith. We can also see a, also see a future parallel in Isaiah 2. So anybody in the Old Testament, even today, maybe somebody who's just orthodox in the Old Testament, they ask, well, it's foreigner stuff. It's all throughout the scripture. First Kings 8, uh, Isaiah 2. God just keeps telling his people, don't forget about the aliens, the Gentiles, the foreigners, somebody who doesn't look like you. Right? You, you want to win them. You know, we want to bring them into the fold. And I'll read this uh, portion of scripture, 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. 2 Chronicles 7. Now again, Chronicles is more from the spiritual aspect. It's a parallel account. It says, Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. Sound like somebody? What does that sound like? That's right, Elijah. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the, the Lord's house. Seems like it happens twice. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. 
the closer you get to God, you just become worshipful. I'm telling you, it's, uh, it's an amazing experience. Whether you're getting close to Him through the Word, whether an evangelist is talking to you about God, building a bridge, giving you wisdom, you just you become overwhelmed. You, you see the goodness of God. Um, the fire came down. They might have been awed, a little bit scared, but they really were in love with their God. So, verse 62 through 66, the last few verses. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord, and Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord, for there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. And maybe that's part of the reason God sent down that fire, to just make sure it was accepted, showing them that. At that time, Solomon held a feast, and all Israel with him, a great congregation from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt, before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, 14 days. On the eighth day, boy, the, the Jewish people really knew how to party. I mean, <laughs> some of these, the wedding celebrations, when you read the Old Testament, they just enjoyed, enjoyed life. Where today we have to make five minutes for ourselves to have a little bit of peace and, you know, to relax. This is New Jersey. It's how we roll here. But I submit to you that these people were more healthy emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, physically, because they knew how to enjoy their lives. They knew how to praise the Lord. And you know what? God blessed them. They might not have had the money we have or the degrees or the opportunities, but you know what? They were content. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and he went to their, and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. So this is what we have. Uh, probably this happened during the Feast of Tabern Tabernacles, which commemorated, ironically, the children of Israel wandering through the desert, or the wilderness, and God providing them for them miraculously. So if this was at the Feast of Tabernacles, what's amazing is now they're celebrating that they don't have to wander anymore. They're in, a, in geographic stability with the temple that's fixed, and, and there's stability now in the children of Israel, in a sense, geographically. They're in a land of milk and honey and grapes and fruit and olives, and you know, God just completely blessed them. So two, three quick points. Number one, what made the temple so amazing was, was not its splendor, but the fact that God dwelt in it. We see a lot of monuments today. You ever go into a, a, a monument that's just massive and stone and and you just walk into it and it's just cold. It's kind of beautiful for its workmanship, but it's cold. Some people like have houses that are so ornate and you could never afford it. They're so big, but they're so cold. What matters is what's inside, um, not the structure itself. And you can see ministries like that too. They can be built bigger and bigger and bigger and empire upon empire but is the Lord in the center of it. There is a quote that I'm actually going to read. Um, I got it from Wearsby, but it, he said it was an unknown quote, and he said something to the effect of, if, uh, I'm going to butcher it, but someday I'll make sure I got it real straight here. So he says basically something to the effect of, if the Holy Spirit was removed from a lot of what goes on in Christianity, a lot of people 
wouldn't recognize it, and that's really sad. That is really sad. Because just because there's a lot of fanfare and there's a lot of lights and there's a lot of celebrities, it doesn't mean that God is in it. I mean, we keep, this is layers that I'm doing. We could talk about our own selves. We could talk about the temple. We could talk about events and organizations. We could talk about the church. But it's the same thought through layers and layers and layers. Second thing is, this prayer has cycles. Now, I'm going to start with sin, but before sin, oftentimes, especially with the children of Israel, was prosperity, overabundance of prosperity, which often led to debauchery and then led to sin. Solomon picks it up with the cycle of sin. Follow this. Sin, conviction, repentance, forgiveness, restoration. One of my Jewish friends who I've been friends with for probably 20 years, he goes, you Christians are always talking about sin. I said, come here, brother. Let me, sh- let me open up the Old Testament to you. He goes, oh, you got me. I'm like, we got it from you guys. You know, you guys started it. But it's kind of funny because you can see the, 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 the nexus, the parallels between the Old and the New Testament. Very exciting. Deuteronomy 30, promise forgiveness and restoration for the people if God's people would repent and turn from their wicked ways. 2 Chronicles 7.14, very popular. Christians have it memorized. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now this was specific to the children of Israel, but there are some principles that we can take in Christianity today. We can't over-spiritualize or over-contextualize a scripture that really has to do with something that happened with the children of Israel, but there are layers and there's, there's themes that continue to carry through into Christianity. Three, what does the temple of our hearts look like? Is God on the inside? Is what we do as a church or the Christian community, is it a show? Or is God on the inside? Is he a part of it? Is it window dressing? We could be serving, performing, teaching, and thinking it's for God, but where are our motives when we're doing these things? So we we read the scripture here. Thousands of years later, we can ask the same questions. Is God the center of my life? I can put on a good show for you. My wife knows the truth, right? Is God the center of my life? Is he the center of your life? Is he empowering me? Or am I doing it in my own strength? Have I gotten good at putting on a show? Am I here because of my relationship with the Lord? Is it obvious in my life that I'm propelled by God or I'm devoid of God? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.